Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. Today, Sam Seifert is continuing our series, Healed by Jesus. And for this year's Lent project called Moving Hope, we're partnering with Moviendo Esperanza, an organization that works on the ground in Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is a developing country where over 700,000 people live with a physical disability, but they have no access to state funding or support. And more than 50% of those with disabilities in Costa Rica live in poverty and have little hope of improving their situation. And so the goal of our project called Moving Hope is to partner with Moviendo Esperanza and offer mobility and access to those who desperately need it. For more information on how to get involved, please visit our website for the different ways to give. Coming up on April 19th, we have our next Discipleship Pathway, and it's focusing on the Apostles' Creed. Why does it matter and what does it mean? And we do hope you'll join us and you can register online for this free event. And the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the new group, Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, everyone. Welcome here, and uh, we're here again as the gathered as one body, the church. And uh, to be clear, the church is not a building uh, that you visit or an event that you attend. It's a family you belong to, right? And as a family, we're doing all that we can uh, for the healing of the world. And uh, we know not perfectly, are we? We're not perfect doing that, uh, but it's our desire here at Southview uh, to be a blessing to our world. So if uh, you're joining us for the first time or you're joining us online, uh, welcome to you. If you're sitting in front of your computer on your iPad by yourself, uh, you are not alone. You're joined by friends and strangers alike. And all of us are really searching for God's presence in our days We're trying to make some meaning or sense out of our current experiences that we walk in each and every week, and all of us are waiting for the season of recovery and healing to begin. And so even in our waiting, God is at work all around us. We might not always see it or feel it, but God is knitting together new ways of being the church, the community of God, because that's what God does, and that's who God is. But the promise of these new possibilities always emerge from seasons of suffering and struggle. And that does not deny that suffering and struggle does occur. But as we gather this Palm Sunday weekend, we come to God's word to help us to see who Jesus is and understand what he truly offers us and he calls us to as we seek to serve him. So we want to take time this weekend to celebrate the wonder of who Jesus is as we prepare ourselves to move in to Passion Week a story that reminds us that Jesus emptied himself out, all out for us, 
and for this world, fully plunging into suffering and struggle. So we do hope you can join us on Good Friday and Easter this coming weekend. But until then, let's pray to our risen King. Lord Jesus, on that first Palm Sunday, you entered that rebellious city where you were to die. And we pray that today you would enter our hearts and that you would subdue them to yourself. And as your disciples blessed your coming and spread garments and branches in your way, make us even ready today to lay at your feet all that we have and are, that we too may bless your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're continuing in our series that we've called Healed by Jesus, and we've been moving uh, through this season of Lent. We've been looking at some of these gospel stories, these miracles of healings by Jesus. Now, a lot of these healings had kind of unexpected elements to them, some of them even beyond the physical healings itself, as we've seen. And today, our story is going to bring us back to the gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. But the Gospel of Matthew is really an extended um, defense, kind of in story form, of the claim that there's a new sect of, within Judaism known originally as the Way, which later became known as Christianity. And it was, in, in fact, the authentic Judaism, the completion or fulfillment of God's purpose for Israel and the world. So at the time of its writing, the debate had kind of reached a fever pitch with strong words kind of flowing in both direction. And the narrator consistently affirms that the authentic people of God are defined no longer by ancestry or ethnic identity, but by allegiance to Jesus the Messiah. And that's really the central theme of the whole book of Matthew. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is bringing salvation history to its climax, saving his people from their sins and offering salvation to all the people everywhere. And so that's kind of the big backdrop as we kind of narrow into this story that we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 to 13. So turn with me there uh, to verse uh, 9. And uh, friends, this is the word of God. Verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners." So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Spencer uh, led us through the preceding narrative in verse 1 to 9, or 1 to 8, that introduces this kind of notion that forgiveness was a primary uh, focus of Jesus' mission. And in this story that we are looking at today, carries that point even further. And it uses Jesus' healing ministry as kind of an acted parable of his most important mission, which is repairing or healing lives that are broken by sin. And this is why, personally, why I follow and love Jesus. Jesus has done this in my own life. He's healed and restored me, and he continues to do it. Lord knows I need it every single day. And if you get to know me, you, you know I need that even more every day that I'm alive. But Jesus is amazing. 
He truly is. And I hope that through this story today, you will come to see the wonder of who Jesus is and have the same desire as Matthew in this story is to follow after him. Because this passage is Matthew's personal account of being called by Jesus to be his disciple. Now, the location of this event was probably still at or near the city of Capernaum, which is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, as you can see on the map here. And this event occurred shortly after this first one that we just looked at a couple of weeks ago. So it's probably in the same vicinity. And Matthew opens his account by telling us this in verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, I personally think Matthew had heard quite a bit about Jesus. Being that he was a tax collector in the city of Capernaum, in his line of business, I'm sure he heard a lot about all the things that were happening in around his city. He must have heard of all of the stories and gossip about the things that Jesus had done in this area, how Jesus had healed the leprous man of leprosy, how he had healed the servant of a Roman centurion with just a command, how he healed the fisherman Peter's mother-in-law. And Matthew must have heard something about how Jesus had stood up in the boat in the middle of the storm in the Sea of Galilee and commanded the storm to be silent or the wind to be silent. And he must have heard about how Jesus had confronted the two demoniacs on the other side of the sea and how these evil spirits had obeyed him and commanded them to come out of them. Now, my suspicion is that Matthew had heard a lot about of all these things. But I also suspect that the realization of who Jesus was had caused Matthew's heart to sink in despair. Because somewhere along the way, Matthew had chosen a life of sin. He had sold himself out to the Roman authorities and he had chosen to become a betrayer of his people for profit. He had become a tax collector. Now, the average Jewish person in ancient Palestine had several reasons to dislike tax collectors. First, the Palestine local uh, Jewish nobilities undoubtedly ranged for these tax collections. Second, that the empire sometimes had to take precaution against tax collectors overcharging people meant that that probably was actually happening. And third, nearly all scholars concur that taxes were outrageous, even without overcharging. Now, many insist that those who paid taxes and tithe were paying between 30 and 40%. And in some parts of the empire, taxation was so oppressive that laborers fled their land and at times depopulating entire villages because the taxes were so high. Now, Matthew's office would have put him in a pretty prominent position, possibly as a customs official. Now, Matthew, as a customs agent, would charge levies on merchandise that was leaving Herod Philip's province and entering the province of his half-brother, Herod Antipas. You can see here on the map. So Matthew would have been employed by Herod Antipas. He would have sat in the booth at the entry point of the city where there was kind of a cross-section of commerce collecting tariffs and taxes and sometimes taking a little extra for himself. Now, Matthew would have been regarded by many as no better than a robber. He would have been despised by his fellow Jews who would have regarded him as a traitor, an enemy of the state who took Jewish money and gave it to their overlords. But Jesus came. Matthew wants to insist 
not to destroy, but to fulfill. It simply means that morning has broken on a new day, God's new day. And the practices that were appropriate for this nighttime are now no longer needed. And so in the middle of all this newness sits a surprised and grateful man, Matthew, the tax collector, telling the story of his own calling in the middle of a long list of healing miracles. Now, why would he do that? Well, if we pause for a moment, we may find an answer. Because if you are a tax collector in the ancient world, or for that matter, even in today's modern one, you would get used to people being angry with you. N.T. Wright put it like this. Now think for a moment what life would have been like for Matthew, day after day, year after year. Suppose it was you. You would sit in your hot little booth, waiting for travelers to pay the toll as they pass from one province into the next. They wouldn't enjoy it, nor would you. Then you think what it would be like having a young prophet with a spring in his step and God's kingdom in his heart coming past one day and he sees you and simply asks you to follow him. Yes, it would feel exactly like a healing miracle. I love how that is kind of put together because as we see in verse nine, it seems to hint at something even more. It seems it would be like a resurrection because it says in verse nine, and he got up. Now, literally, that means he arose. That's what it means. And Matthew is using a regular Greek word. It's a resurrection word. It's the same Greek word used for Jesus rising again on the third day. In Luke chapter 24, verse 7, it says, The Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. The same Greek word. And it means to come back to life from the dead. So Matthew rose up. A picture of new life, spiritual healing, a broken life being repaired, and followed Jesus. And that word follow means to move behind someone in the same direction, to come after. And so in this context, the word signifies following Jesus as a disciple, as a learner of Jesus. So this begins Matthew's journey as a disciple of Jesus. And in an instant, Matthew walked away from this lucrative career and this job to follow Jesus, a radical move. And though he forfeited these earthly riches, he obtained new life, a greater sense of destiny, a personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So how could Jesus and his friends not celebrate? They were in the middle of God's new work in the world. And so Matthew records that they go to have a big dinner with Jesus. And Luke actually says it was a great banquet. So this is a big party. And in verse 10, we read, and as he sat at the dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting or reclining with him and his disciples. Now, while only Matthew has been called to be a disciple, we now find that he represents a much larger group of people who have been attracted to Jesus. And for Jesus and his disciples to be guests in this house of such a man, it kind of sharpens the Pharisee's objection towards him. Now, Pharisee, that, just, that term means the separated ones. 
uh, they were a group of experts in the scriptures and were convinced that God would free the people from Roman oppression if the Jews would be faithful to the observance of the law, especially regulations concerning purity codes for eating. They're very concerned about the law. They wanted God to come and free them from all of this oppression. So in verse 11, we read, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, in the first century Jewish culture, table fellowship included proximity and hospitality. And you're probably thinking, whoop-de-doo, who cares? <laughs> well, in that culture it signified intimacy and identification as social peers. And as we know, tax collectors were despised and the sinners were likely people who were not living a law-abiding life before God. And so by having tableship fellowship with these unsavory members of society, Jesus implies that he associates with them and he approves of them. Further, tax collectors and sinners were likely considered impure. And eating with this impure element could render the entire meal impure and contaminate the table participants with ritual uncleanness. That's why the Pharisees avoided eating with sinners and tax collectors. But table fellowship is Jesus' opportunity to identify with the excluded portions of society and perhaps to offer a different conception of the social and religious life of Israel. In fact, since Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God in terms of a great banquet all the time through the gospels, Jesus' feast with the tax collectors and sinners may be intended to depict a foreshadowing experience of the kingdom. That's what's happening. A new work is happening in this time. Now, what's interesting, Matthew does something here that neither Mark nor Luke does in the telling of their story of this he includes a quotation from Hosea chapter 6. Jesus speaks the words of Hosea 6, verse 6. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, as a response to the Pharisees who object to what they perceive as inappropriate behavior either by Jesus or his disciples. Now, most will identify mercy in this passage either in the sense of human compassion or covenant faithfulness is that which the Pharisees lack in which Jesus has. In contrast to Jesus, the Pharisees do not show mercy to the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, this is how I've often interpreted this passage every time I come to read this. But I was recently reading an article uh, by Dr. Benjamin Ribbons. He's a professor of theology at Trinity Christian College. It was a fascinating article. He proposes that mercy, in the sense of covenant faithfulness, is what the tax collectors, sinners, and disciples have towards Jesus. And I found that very interesting. I'd never really heard that before. So I want to tease this out a little bit, okay? So to understand what Matthew is doing, we need to understand the Old Testament context of the verse he is using. Now, when Matthew uses this quote, his readers would have known the entire context of this one little phrase because they knew the story of the Old Testament. When we hear this little phrase, we really have a hard time of understanding because maybe we don't know the context of what he's talking about. So for example, it would be like similar to if I were to say to you this phrase, this is kind of how they would hear it. Here's the phrase. Talk to me, goose. <laughs> what comes to mind? 
a whole movie, two movies, in fact, all of the characters, the emotions around that, the music, you know the whole context of that one little phrase. And that's what's happening that these Jewish readers would come to understand. That's why we need to understand the Old Testament so we can understand the story of the New Testament. Now, a great resource for you to get going on that in the Old Testament, I'd really encourage you to pick up the book, The Epic of Eden. Um, It's by Sandra Richter. It's kind of an entry into the Old Testament themes and covenant relationships. There's a QR code here. It takes you right to Amazon. You can order it. And you can get going in understanding some of the Old Testament. And it's a really um, accessible book. But I want you to turn with me to uh, the book of Hosea. So if you have your Bible app or your Bible, if you're looking at pages, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. You get to Revelation, put the brakes on, you got to come back the other direction, all right? So Hosea, we're going to look at chapter 5 and verse 6. So Hosea 6, verse 6, comes in the context of the Lord's judgment on Ephraim and Judah. Now that's referring to the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. So in order to punish Ephraim for its sin, the Lord allowed Assyria to oppress them. And a similar judgment awaits Judah. So Hosea describes the Lord's judgment with sickness imagery. So Hosea chapter 5, verse 13. Ephraim experiences sickness and Judah wounds. And so after Ephraim was afflicted, it tried to make peace with the king of Assyria, but he's not able to cure their sickness or heal their wounds. In verse 15, although the Lord promised to pour out his wrath, there is hope for restoration. And healing if they what? Acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. So having established that repentance is the only hope for Israel, Hosea 6 verse 1 through 3 articulates kind of a song of repentance that could be sung by Ephraim and Judah. So after a call to repentance in verse 1 of chapter 6, come let us return to the Lord. This sorrowful song declares that although the Lord was the one who tore them to pieces and injured them, he is the only one that can heal them. And if Ephraim and Judah would repent in this manner, the Lord would quickly restore them so that, verse 2, they may live before him. Then we get to verse 4. In this 4 to 6, it interprets this, or interrupts this song of repentance with an expression of frustration by God over the reality of this situation. So we read in chapter 6, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Now this word love, it's a Hebrew word, hesed, and it means steadfast love, kindness, faithfulness, or loyalty. And the core idea of this term relates to loyalty within a relationship. So Israel's covenant faithfulness or love is not reliable. They're a fickle people whose covenant breaking requires and receives God's judgment. Then in Hosea chapter six, verse six, God gives the reason for his decision to execute judgment. He says this, for I desire steadfast love, he said, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. 
So this verse reiterates the Lord's accusation, if you go back to chapter 4, uh, verse 1 and 2, that Israel has no faithfulness, no loyalty, and that word loyalty is the same word, said, and no knowledge of God. Rather, the people of Israel, they swear, they lie, they murder, they steal, they commit adultery. They break the Lord's covenant stipulations. And then in chapter 6, verse 7, like Adam, they have transgressed this covenant. So the steadfast love in Hosea 6, 6, therefore clearly refers to the covenant faithfulness on Israel's part toward God and not to acts of mercy. What God truly desires is the covenant faithfulness that is fleeting among Ephraim and Judah. It's like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. So come back to Matthew. Matthew 9. Jesus responds to the Pharisees with a well-known proverb in verse 12 when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So the clear implication here is that Jesus is the doctor. And the tax collectors and the sinners are the sick who need the doctor's attention. So being sick in need of a doctor was not a position you wanted to be in. However, when Matthew follows this proverb about the sick with the quotation from Hosea chapter 6, the imagery of sickness in Hosea 5 and 6 kind of helps us understand what Matthew's trying to do here in chapter 9. Hosea depicted Israel as sick and in need of healing. But if Judah and Ephraim would repent, then the Lord would heal them. So by following the doctor proverb with the quotation of Hosea 6, Matthew identifies the sick not only as those contaminated by the sickness of sin, but also those who can become recipients of divine liberation and divine healing so long as they turn to the Lord in covenant faithfulness. So Jesus' ministry is for the sick, the sinners, and he intends to restore them again to good health, that is, into relationship with God. And so since Matthew appears to be aware of this Hosean context, and since Matthew inserts this verse between verse 12 and 13, which identified Jesus' ministry as calling the sick, Matthew seems to be drawing on the sickness imagery of Hosea. So here it is. Just as mercy or steadfast love in Hosea 6 is the covenant faithfulness that the sick Ephraim and Judah ought to have towards the Lord in order to be healed by the Lord and restored to his presence, so also mercy in chapter 9 might be the covenant faithfulness that the sick, this time the tax collectors and sinners, ought to have towards Jesus in order to be healed by Jesus and restored to the divine presence. Therefore, could it be that mercy is not what the Pharisees ought to have towards the tax collectors and sinners, but what the tax collectors and sinners have towards Jesus? Now, Matthew 9 does not suggest that all the tax collectors and sinners dining with Jesus had mercy. 
Matthew is kind of the representative tax collector and sinner who does respond affirmatively to Jesus' call and expresses mercy or love or loyalty. He gets up and follows Jesus. And so the discipleship setting of Matthew chapter 9 confirms that Jesus wants people to be faithful to him. Because if you remember, the story begins by Jesus calling Matthew, and it ends with this declaration in verse 13. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is calling people to follow him and demonstrate faithfulness to him as his disciple. Because his call to discipleship is a call for all the sick to find healing and restoration in him through repentance and faithfulness. And so really, the entire frame of the passage, therefore, emphasizes Jesus' desire for faithfulness, mercy from the sick, from us. I just thought that was fascinating take on the passage. Now, regardless of how we interpret the passage, um, Jesus is not going to let us get away with an us versus them mentality. All of us are sick. All of us need a doctor. All of us are sinners. All of us need the forgiveness of God, and this definitely includes pastors. While you're looking at me like, I'm not in the boat with you, that's concerning. Justine, tell them I need Jesus as much as these people. (laughs) Those who don't, the righteous and the healthy, will never see the kingdom of God because they don't recognize the king who says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call not the righteous but sinners. Now, it won't be evident that the righteous and healthy have learned their lesson until they join the party, the table where a bunch of sinners gather to eat and drink the grace of God. Now, this gospel of reconciliation, it isn't a recipe for religious manipulation or religious coercion. Resentment and hostility, these are two themes prompting Jesus' call for repentance, are really the main causes of exclusion, perpetuating this nasty cycle of revengeful violence. And really, in order to break that cycle, everyone must repent. We and them, friends and enemies, which is one of the most difficult things for us to do, especially as a community. So how do we even do that? Well, Jesus knew what he was doing when he ate with sinners. He empowered them by joining the feast, treating them like all children of Abraham who need God's redemption. That's why he talked openly, and they probably celebrated in the sick of needing a doctor because Jesus came for all sinners. Jesus came for all sinners. Isn't that amazing? That's all of us. That's who he came for. And of all people, tax collectors knew they were sinners in need of repentance, probably more than anyone. And all they needed was his warm embrace and open invitation to join the party of God's table of forgiveness. And one of their own, Matthew, proved that Jesus would take anyone who would come. He would take anyone. And if you are here today and you don't think Jesus would take you, you are wrong. Jesus came for everyone, regardless of what you've done. 
or who you think you are. Now, when I was walking through this, I was really trying to think about like, how is this kind of playing out in my life and what can I do to encourage us as a church as we're trying to wrestle through these healings of Jesus and what does it mean for us even today? And so this kind of thought just kind of, kind of has stuck with me and I've been working through this. Um, but I, I think I, I put it this way. The more conscious I am of the work God has yet to do in me, in other words, as I personally follow Jesus and I become so aware of the things that God still has to work on in me and repair in my life and do, the less critical I am about what he has yet to do in you. The more I wear as I follow Jesus of what he needs to do in me, the less critical I am of what he needs to do in you. See, one of the reasons why some of you don't like coming into a community of faith and are thinking quitting is because some judgmental Christians have stopped following and started evaluating. They decided, well, I followed enough. I know enough. I've been there. I've done that. So they decided they're just going to start helping God. You know, they're going to evaluate and criticize you. But let me tell you, if we as a community would just focus on following Jesus, nobody will feel judged. I don't have time to judge you when I'm busy following Jesus. When I'm moving myself into a posture of following after my Savior to coming after him. Because what if we all just rose up every day experiencing God's resurrection power we showed mercy or steadfast love to our Savior and made the same decision each and every day. Today, I am going to follow. Today, I'm going to follow. I think Southview would become a place that Jesus wants it to continue to be. Where all people, and I mean all people, will experience a Savior who has come to repair their life that has been broken by sin. Where people from every walk of life will be saved from their sin. And maybe collectively, as we learn to follow Jesus like Matthew did, we'll maybe keep growing to be what we're supposed to be. The body of Christ, bringing healing to the world as we come together and follow him in faith. And so as we come to the table of communion this coming Good Friday, we are going to experience the love of our Savior. And then a couple days after that, we get to celebrate the victory over death on Easter morning as he continues to bring new life to all who rise up and follow him. And we get to do that together. And we long for more and more people in this community, in this city, in this nation, in this world to passionately follow Jesus and to experience the resurrection which comes through him. New life is available to all because Jesus came for all, for every sinner in the world, which is every single human being born, except for Jesus, of course, which is a whole nother sermon. Amen? So let's pray to that end. Uh, Father, we thank you for Matthew's story and seeing how you just... You simply invite us to follow you, and, and in our following, you do this cool thing. You start to repair us. You repair the brokenness. You restore relationships, not only with you, but one another. And, and Father, for the person here who's been a part of the community of faith forever and who's maybe lost sight of it, who's made it complicated, I just pray that tomorrow they would get up and just say, 
God, I'm going to follow you today. For the person listening who used to follow you and maybe just went off in kind of a crazy direction that they really just really regret, God, would you just give them courage even tomorrow to get up and say, I want to follow you today. Maybe for that person who's here or even listening online that's skeptical, who isn't even sure they believe any of this, but they know when they're being honest in the quietness of their own place, they know they're sick. There's something wrong. There's something they can't fix. Something's wrong in their soul, in their heart. Oh God, would you just give them courage tomorrow morning to say, man, if you've invited me, Jesus, I want to learn how to follow So, Father, I pray that Southview would be a place where people who are nothing like you would find that they like you and that people who are nothing like you would find that you like them because you're living and working through us, the body of Christ, to love on them and bless them and invite them to the table where we get to party because Jesus is awesome. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close our service. Uh, Our service isn't over. Uh, It's an opportunity to come hang out. If you're a guest here, stop by the newcomers uh, table. We have a gift for you. And we do hope that you can join us this coming weekend for uh, Good Friday. Reminder, bring your rock uh, from Ash Wednesday. If you don't have a rock, that doesn't mean you can't come. Just come anyway. Or just pick up a rock in the parking lot. There's enough here in the city when when the gravel trucks go for winter. Um, But join us one of our Easter service as well as we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as you go into this week, I want you to receive these good words from uh, Paul in his writing from Colossians chapter 1. Now may God give you full insight into his will for your lives, along with all wisdom and understanding, so that your life may be worthy of the Lord and entirely pleasing to him. And may you bear fruit in active goodness of every kind, continually growing in your knowledge and understanding of God. And may God give you the strength you need to endure whatever comes your way with patience and fortitude, all the while giving thanks to God, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to God's holy people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here. Have a great weekend.